Hello, hello, and welcome back to Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week my guest is Jessica Buchanan, and she is going to tell you all about her journey as a fearless female. So introduce yourself, Jessica. (laughs) Thank you so much. I love being categorized as a fearless female. So thank you so much for having me on. Um, My name is Jessica Buchanan, and I am a New York Times bestselling author. I am a teacher by profession, a coach. um, And I think most notably, I'm a kidnapping survivor. In 2011, I was on a routine field mission uh, in Somalia, working for a non-governmental uh, organization, uh, the Danish Demining Group. And I was on a, just like a workshop with my colleague and um, we were apprehended, uh, taken at gunpoint, held hostage, driven out into the desert, forced to basically walk like a mock execution. <gasps> and subsequently were held for 93 days in the desert. 93 we, days. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I can elaborate, of course, but. Um, oh, yes. Like yeah. we're, there's a lot to go. So you were kidnapped <laughs> in Somalia. It's crazy because mm-hmm. I just watched a movie about um, the, it's called The Plane and they crashed in this like re- remote island and they were like kidnapped. But how old were you when this happened? So uh, I just came up on my 11 year rescue anniversary. So I was 31. So not young, not old, um, had just gotten married, didn't have any kids yet. But that was one of the things that kept going through my head was, oh my goodness, like, I'm only 31 years old, like I'm at the very beginning of my career, I haven't even had kids yet, because I've been putting it off for work. And now my life is like, most likely over. Before you went on this trip, did you have any fear? Like, were you just like, no, this is never going to happen. It's just like once it were, were they even warning you like this could possibly happen? So, I mean, I was working for an organization, which I feel like is always important for me to make like very clear, you know, I I think a lot of times people think that this happens to individuals who just like are going into countries like Afghanistan and Somalia, you know, to like sightsee or self-proclaimed journalists or something. And that's not what I was. I was placed there by my organization and followed all of the necessary security protocols. And they, you know, had followed like the UN standards for security. It was level three, which meant it's not like the safest part of the world to be in, but also meant that they were supposed to be adhering to any kind of warnings. Um, And so what I didn't know, what uh, no one told me, my colleague nor the security advisor, was that there was actually a direct kidnapping threat for the organization. Um, but oh. no one told me because they didn't want me to cancel my training and they didn't consider it a viable threat. Wow. So that was very disconcerting to learn like 27 days into the kidnapping. Cause you know, what are you supposed to do with that? Especially when the person you're, you're being held with is essentially responsible for withholding that information with you from you. And then you, that might be the last person you see in your lifetime. Right. Yeah. I did have like this inner knowing I knew Something was awry. Something was amiss. I was just about to ask you that. So what were you doing? Like, take us through that day. Like, what were you doing and what were you feeling? Well, a couple of days before I, so I was based up in Northern Somalia, like Somalia is shaped like a seven. So I was at the top of the seven with my husband who was working for a different organization in that area. It was pretty safe, pretty calm. Um, But, and I traveled all over East Africa. So this training was in the Southern part of Somalia, um, which is closer to like places like Mogadishu, which you might've heard of in the news or something and not so safe. 
not as calm. And I called my colleague up and I said, Hey, you know, I don't feel good about this. I don't want to go on this, this trip. Why don't we bring your staff up? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, we have to be in solidarity with our teams. And, you know, you said you were going to come down here and do this training and you've already canceled twice before. So if you don't get down here, you know, I'm going to report you to supervisor and you're Mm. not doing your job, which was true on one hand. But on the other hand, it's like, well, where is that line between like personal safety? Right. And so I thought, you know, I'm a school teacher from Ohio. Like what's the worst that can happen? Right. So (laughs) I got on a UN plane, (laughs) go down there. We, it was a three-day training. The first two days were in um, the staff office where I was staying in the northern part of the city, which was fine. Um, but we had to cross over across town on the third day, which is what I was worried about. Because if like something significant is going to happen, it's usually going to happen when you're in transit, right? That's when you're most vulnerable. Um, and so I was particularly worried. And I remember having nightmares all night long the night before we were going to head <sighs> to the south. Like... It, Interestingly enough, my nightmares were very clear. They were very vivid and they were about pirates scaling the walls of the compound and trying to kidnap us from like our, our house that we were staying in. And I like hardly slept all night and I woke up the next morning and I remember going into the bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror and just being like, Jess, do you want to do this? Like, is this (laughs) something that you want to do? Yeah. Is it worth a paycheck? Really? (laughs) Right. 100%, right? Like, and I mean, you know, I think a lot of this is a very universal problem for women in what many different capacities, but especially in the professional capacity, right? Like you're feeling pressured, you don't want to do something, you don't want to go someplace, um, you don't want to work with someone because your intuition is like, you're not safe, you're not safe. Mm -hmm. And then we like logic our way out of it, or we rationalize our way out of it. And I was standing there like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go down there and be like, so I'm not going to go to the staff office this morning. Cause I had these nightmares all night long about getting kidnapped by pirates. I'm going to sound like a crazy person. Right. <laughs> but then six hours later, as I get into a convoy of vehicles to cross town, to go back to the North side of the office, what happens? My car is overtaken at gunpoint and I am kidnapped by pirates. Oh, how many people were in the car? And me and then my colleague, uh, Paul, and then um, the security advisor, who is a, a Somali guy, and then the driver. So they pulled him out. So it ended up just being um, me and Paul that were taken. We were the only expats oh. on that field mission. So I think ultimately, Paul was the target and I just happened to be there at the wrong time. Oh, my gosh. So you were held for 93 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how many times did you think like, I'm never going to get rescued? Like, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life or they're going to kill me. Like, how did they treat you? I mean, I never thought I was going to be rescued. I had no idea that that was even like a thing. You know, I thought for sure the only way we were going to get out of there was if a ransom was paid. And so I knew that our, our organization had kidnapping and ransom insurance, but I mean, they started their ransom demand at $45 million. And what I what? heard, yeah, because at this time, like, it's hard to explain. Like, if you're re- anybody in your audience is really interested, they could watch that movie, Mar- Captain Phillips, about the Marsh, oh, Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I actually, I haven't seen it for obvious reasons. But, you know, it's the same kind of deal. At, at this time, pirates were, like, rampant on the water. And they were overtaking ships, these big, huge cargo ships. And they would get big ransoms like in the in the millions of dollars because these ships had 
cargo on them. And they didn't, I, I think after the Captain Phillips ordeal, they started moving on to land because mm. the water wasn't safe to kidnap on. And so they were taking um, expats and uh, tourists, tourists and NGO workers. Um, but they were still like asking for these crazy high cargo ship amounts, right? How How is the media not covering this? So they don't on request of the family and the organization and the FBI, because the more media coverage there is, then the higher the stakes are in terms of like a ransom demand. And it's for the victims, the hostages safety that it's not being covered in the media. So during that time that you were out there for 93 days, how did you not just give up hope? I mean, how did you spend your days trying to stay alive? Like what was your mindset during those days? I mean, I think high highs and low lows, more low lows than highs. I had nothing to do. Like we lived outside. So I sat under a tree or laid under a bush all day. And then I would lay out in the open at night. We were never taken to a building or a tent or given any kind of shelter. It, so I was exposed to the elements. So the desert is really hot during the day and really cold at night. And there's no, you know, it rains like you know, you're sitting there yeah. like it just drenched and first thing in the morning it's it was awful and I mean I'm an outdoorsy girl but I mean this stretched me to my limits I'm a person of faith and so I my spirituality is really important to me it was then and it is now um so I I spent a lot of time trying to meditate trying to pray I did this you know I I spent like I think it was like day 40 or something, um, you know, somewhere in there, I decided that, you know, I needed to stay sane and stay alive and survive this thing and get back to my husband and get back to my family. I, I felt like I had a duty and a responsibility to survive. And so, um, I made that my job, you know, like, okay, I don't know, like, I, I'm a hard worker. I know how to work. Um, so I, I can do this. I can survive. Um, and I would take it in increments, you know, like, Sometimes I felt strong enough to look at the next 30 days. Other times I felt only strong enough to look at the next five minutes. But, you know, through it all, I didn't, I didn't have any doubt. I don't think I really doubted that I wasn't going to make it out. I didn't know how long it was going to take. And I didn't know what kind of shape I was going to be in. But I just believed that, you know, and I would visualize myself walking out of there and, reuniting with my husband and I would visualize myself like with becoming a mother and I would just visualize what I wanted my life to look like when I got out. I visualize not putting off, you know, like not doing work that I didn't want to do. Like I just, it's one of those, it's like a near death experience, right? Like, you know, only mine just took so long, but I can imagine that you could equate it to somebody with a chronic disease who, you know, goes into remission or something, you get a second lease on life. And so I just kept visualizing that for myself until 93 days later, it happened not in the way I had ever expected or even knew was possible, but it came. I mean, for somebody who is visualizing this, I'm thinking about like, well, how did you go to the bathroom? Like when you got your period, did they give you stuff for your period? Did they feed you? Did they give you, you know, sunscreen or chapstick or toilet mm -hmm. paper? Or like, did they, how did they treat you like just an animal? And were you next mm -hmm. to Paul? Like, did you have Paul to at least have some comfort mm -hmm. and someone to talk to? So like the creature comforts. No, I was not given like toilet paper. Sometimes we got some tissues, 
Um, and that be, ended up being really problematic because I got a urinary tract infection, which would mm. then actually turn out to be a gift because that was what led, got the wheels, you know, turning for my rescue. But um, I had one period while I was out there, like right after, like a week after I'm thinking, I thought I was pregnant actually when no. I, I, so I don't know what was happening. I don't there. I'll just say it was like a murder scene and I didn't know what was happening to my body and I couldn't get any medical care. And that was it. I didn't have any kind of menstruation after that. So something was happening to my body. Um, I think it was obviously the stress and the, the nutritional deficiencies I was given, like, I mean, it was irregular. Like, I think I probably had something to eat every day, but it was small. It was like, maybe a little mini size can of tuna fish. I like ended up eating that with like a tampon applicator because I couldn't figure out how to eat tuna with my fingers. And I was just gross and dirty all the time too. I had a tampon applicator. They let me keep like a little purse that had stuff in it and I had a tampon in it. Oh my gosh. So I, you know, you get very, I felt like MacGyver, right? Like you get very resourceful, very resourceful, very quickly. Um, And you kind of learn to laugh about it too. Cause you're like, this is just the most bizarre thing, right? Like this is so only happens in movies. Like it only happens in movies. Like you, when I watch movies like that, I think to myself, like, how would I be? Who would I be? I know personally, like I'm so domesticated with all the elements of like, you know, your comforts of home that I know that like when you describe being out in the sun, like to not have sunscreen or chapstick or Mm -hmm. water or to be able, like your fingers are dirty and dry because you haven't had water and you're dehydrated or having to go to the bathroom and like, there's no bathroom, you know, or how are you going to clean yourself? How are you going Mm -hmm. to take care of yourself? Like you did that for 93 days. That's incredible and truly fearless because I think I probably would have given up right away and been like, just take me. Um, Yeah. Were you allowed to have conversations with Paul or were you guys supposed to stay silent? All of it. Sometimes we were allowed to be together and we were allowed to have conversations. Usually if negotiations weren't moving in the right direction is what they would say. Then we were not allowed to talk or they would like take one of us to another camp and fire off a bunch of gunshots and come back and say, well, we killed him or we killed her, you know, like all this mind games trying to, you know, torture us with that. Or they would say, you know, they would take one of us and and drive us off and say, oh, we're going to go sell them to Al-Shabaab, which is an Islamic terrorist extremist group that would, you know, kill us. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of that. And you don't have any reason not to believe them. Right. You know? Yeah. So every time something like that happened, then you don't know, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe they really, maybe they aren't bluffing, you know, even though I was... Mad at Paul, <laughs> yeah. I he, he he was all I had, and so there were moments where you know it was really nice to have somebody else there, and then there were moments of just extreme long loneliness, like the longness of it all, that felt like I might just come out of my skin because it yeah. was so so empty and so long. Were there anybody that you connected with? on their side in any way, shape or form? Like were there women, were there children or were they just all men? All men. One child, uh, like a nine, 10 year old, Abdullahi. 
he was actually, and I thought, oh, okay, well, this is great because I'm a teacher, right? Like I've never yeah. met a kid I can't like connect with, but man, gosh, he was so traumatized. Oh, you know, he'd already killed three people. <gasps> I mean, he was just two black holes for eyes and he just tormented me. He would follow me around. He would order me. He would put knives to my throat. He would point guns at my head. And I mean, he was a little kid. So who was like traumatized. So didn't understand like, Hey, if I shoot her, then, you know, we're going to be in trouble because we don't have anything to negotiate with. Yeah. So that was, he disappeared on New Year's day. I remember it was our last altercation and he put a a knife to my throat because I wouldn't move. Like he wanted me to move like six inches over or something. And I was like, I'd had enough of it. You know, I was like, I'm done with, I'm done with all of this. I had, you know, I'd have those moments where I would just be like, I'm going to lose it on you guys. And, um, and that was one of those mornings because I, you know, it's new year's day and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> yeah, I just, well, I woke up in hell one, one more time and I'm starting out 2012 in this God forsaken place. And, and I have no idea how much longer I'm going to be here. So, you know, yeah, it was like, I started learning how to cook like over the campfire. Yeah. Um, because I felt like that gave me something to do and it gave me some, like something to do with my time. Um, but I also, I think started accepting that I was going to be there for a really long time and I just needed to learn how to do something. Um, yeah. because this thing was going to take a while that, was depressing and also kind of empowering at the same time because it gave me some autonomy over like cleanliness, you know, yeah. I didn't have like everybody's hands in my food and, and stuff, but it was still pretty, pretty bleak. Yeah. Were there other people other than you and Paul in that camp? Just the kidnappers, just the pirates. No, no other hostages that we saw. Just us. This episode is sponsored by CoachSnap. Are you looking for an all-in-one platform to help you build your coaching business? Then you need CoachSnap. It allows you to schedule appointments, collect payments, train and support all of your clients' needs. Health, fitness, hockey, football, or even life coaches can use CoachSnap. It's the business platform that will help you be the best coach you can be. So tell us about the day that you were rescued. Take us back to that day. Yeah. So that would have been January 24th, 2012. And like I said, I had gotten a urinary tract infection. It was turning into a kidney infection. Mm-hmm. And I knew this because I'd had one before and I'd been hospitalized in uh, Kenya for like a week. So I needed, I knew I needed like an IV. I needed a doctor. I needed drugs and mm-hmm. or else I was going to get, probably get sepsis and die. Um, and so about 10 days before we had had what would become our last proof of life call and with our our family like liaison person and and that would be like when they would drive us out into the desert put us on the phone and make us talk like talk to someone and answer a series of security questions to make sure that we were still alive so that negotiations could keep moving forward yeah and um I told her you know things aren't good like I don't feel I'm not feeling good I, I don't think I've got much time left because, you know, I'm hallucinating with fever, like all the things and they won't bring me a doctor or medicine. And so, you know, we, a week, 10 days rolls by. And, and then that night I I pull them out. Like I've done all the other nights before I go lay down and roll myself up my blanket and I, you know, fall asleep 
probably around six o'clock because the sun goes down around six o'clock and sleep was very precious and protected because it was the only escape I had. I woke up a couple hours later because I was sick and uh, I stand up and say the word toilet and no one wakes up. No one, there were nine guys on the ground that night and uh, it was very strange that no one was awake. And I say the word toilet again, because I don't want to leave my mat without their permission because I only done that once before and I wasn't going to do it again. Um, and so no one wakes up. Everybody's completely passed out. So I'm like flashing a small little pen light so that they can see that I'm still in the camp. I go to the bush, do what I need to do, come back, roll myself back up in my blanket. And then I can hear this sound like grass breaking as if an animal or something is coming toward us. And then the pirate on my, my left jumps up and I can't see him because it's really, really dark. Like the stars have clouded over and everything. And, um, but I can feel that he's terrified. Right. And I can hear him start whisper screaming to the rest of them to get up. And then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire. (gasps) And, and I'm thinking, I I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this thing alive. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, cause in my mind I'm thinking, oh, I bet we're being kidnapped by another group Oh gosh. because that was always a threat. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it did not once cross my mind that it could actually be good, that it mm. could be help until I start, somebody starts like shaking my legs and my arms and pulls the blanket down away from my face. And I'm like trying to fight back, like trying to protect myself. And I hear um, the voice of a young American man. And he says, uh, Jessica, it's okay. We're the American military. We're here. You're safe now. We're going to take you home. Oh. And all I can say, I like, he helps me sit up and I'm just like, you're American. Wait a second. You're American. <sighs> like, I cannot, I have no frame. Like I have yeah. no idea what to do with all of this right now. Like what is happening? And he says, oh yeah, we've been watching you for a really long time and we know how sick you've been. And he gives me medicine and clean water. And there's a whole group of them. One of them picks me up and throws me over his shoulder and like takes me (laughs) takes me over to a place that's safe. And Paul, my first question is, is Paul there? Is is he, did he make it out? Okay. Is he alive? And, and they say, Paul's there and he leaves over to me. He says, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? And I'm like, I have no idea. Um, And I'm not really sure I care. Like, I mean, I think we're going to be at home. And he's like, this is SEAL Team 6. Like, these are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. Wow. You know, like, in so much shock, just shaking. And I can't even, can't even compute. And then that would, you know, be the start of a new life um, that I would have to rebuild. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm sure there's so much healing you have to go through and reprogramming of all the things they that they programmed into your brain and made you believe because that's a lot of psychological mm-hmm. terror to like take your friend away and shoot into the sky and tell you he's dead I mean and then go through that multiple times and for 93 days I just can't even imagine it's like your whole entire story is from a movie you can't you can't even put I can't even imagine you truly are a fearless female. Your journey has been incredible. One you probably never wanted ever and didn't sign up for. Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. But but here we are. <laughs> I mean, but you're just an example of how resilient we are as human beings and as a woman, because it's different for a woman to be surrounded by nine men than it is for a man. Mm-hmm. And so I just I I applaud you for your courageousness and your 
just, ah, I can't, there's no words. Mm -hmm. You are beyond brave, beyond fearless, beyond resilient. And I'm thankful and honored to be sharing your story here on the podcast. Um, ah, tell us a little bit about your journey home. Like, like when you met your husband and how that felt and like sleeping on a bed because you, you haven't slept in a bed for 90 days Mm and taking a shower, how hard it was to like, (laughs) Yeah, get readjusted to all the things. Mm. Yeah, it was not easy. It was not easy. Um, interestingly enough, I wound up uh, getting pregnant with my first child, my son, and um, about a month after the rescue. And so that really threw me for a loop. I was like, kind of felt like I had been taken hostage again in my own body. And that was a very strange experience. And, you know, I have PTSD and now I have you know, I have this baby and I have postpartum depression and anxiety and it was really, really hard. We went back to to Africa for about a year after the kidnapping. I didn't go back to Somalia, but I, uh, Nairobi had been home really for us. We had a place there Uh and my son was born in Nairobi. And, um, after a while, it just became really difficult to be there. Um, so we, uh, relocated to the U.S. My husband is from Sweden, so it was his first time, like living in the states. I think he'd only been here like twice before, so that was that was a lot. And then we got this baby, and I lost my career, you know, because I can't like, you know, I I tried to go back to work for a little while, and it just you know wasn't it didn't go well. So, and um, then it's mm-hmm. like okay, well, you know, we we kind of settled uh, temporarily outside of Washington D.C because we had some friends here and, uh, it was like, okay, well, wh- you know, what now? <laughs> like, what do you, what do you, what am I supposed to do now? And so it's been a really long journey. Um, I call it desert, my desert to mountaintops, which is the, the name of the, my book that just came out about a month ago. But, um, I have, I will always do the work. I made a commitment to myself and to God, I think, when I was sitting out there that I would do whatever psychological and emotional and spiritual repair work that needed to be done when I got out. Um, and, and so that has been really my main focus for the last decade in, in, in healing, really, really taking my time to heal and recognizing that our healing journeys are never over. But um, I've gotten to this mountaintop, I think, and, and gotten to the top of that and victoriously, but then seeing that there are many more mountains I'm going to climb. Um, but it, I, I've gotten out of that desert anyway. Yeah. And, and it's been, it's been really hard, uh, but it's been really, really worth it. I think, I I'm think sure. I, I call this space surviving survival. And um, no one really talks about that. Like, mm. you know, everybody wants mm-hmm. to hear about the kidnapping and what that was like. And it's like, that was the easy part. Let's talk about trying to fit in with moms on the playground when you've had nightmares about being kidnapped on the long, right? you know, when you're sleep deprived. Be, yeah. I know I was, I was thinking like, how could you go to the grocery store and see everyone just like their biggest problem is whether or not things are on sale. And you're like, uh, I almost got <laughs> murdered. Like, how do you go back to that? You know, like, how do you go back and, and assimilate to normal society while everybody is like complaining about the smallest things when there is a whole nother world that we are not prelude to, you know, we don't, we don't know that this is actually going on. Like I, you know, thought the movie Captain Phillips mm-hmm. was just like a movie, 
you know, that this, I didn't know that this was actually occurring and that people are actually being kidnapped, you know, for ransom for extraordinary amounts of money. Like once they give them the money, how can like, I mean, I just don't understand, like, how are we as a government allowing this to happen to people, you know, because it's not Mm -hmm. something that should be happening. We're the most intelligent intelligent country and yet Somalia people with less education and less technology and all of this are do are getting away Mm. with this well and I think that that is the conversation right like I think for the people who are like and I you know I heard it all believe me um you know I've been very open and talk I've talked publicly about this for a long long time but if we are not doing our part as a you know, developed country or westernized country to build capacity and infrastructures and make places safer, offering whatever capacities we have to ensure that that is possible, then things like this are going to keep happening. We have a duty, I believe, and a responsibility. You know, lots of people ask me if I still believe in aid work. My husband still works in international development. He still, he manages a large program all over Africa. He goes to Africa once a month. Mm. Like, yeah, I still believe in it because, you know, we have been given so many resources and, and we do have our educations and we do have our skill sets and for what, right? Like there are people out there suffering and, you know, I want to make it clear too that the U.S. government doesn't pay ransom demands. So, you know, there are people being held hostage still. Oh, okay. I mean, all over the world. It's estimated that there are 300 Americans taken hostage or detained um, illegally by government state actors every year. Um, And it gets really tricky. It's really hard. There are no simple answers. There are no simple solutions. It wreaks havoc on the, the hostage or the detainee and the family that, you know, that are sitting there waiting, selling off their homes and their assets to try to get together money for ransoms when that person was just, you know, going and doing their job. It's really complicated. It's really hard. It's really scary. Um, I am one of the lucky ones. I don't think that there are any women out there who have managed to survive a kidnapping and then the actual rescue attempt. Lots of hostages are killed in the middle of a rescue attempt. When I say I'm lucky, like, believe you me, I know how lucky I am. Uh, But there is a reason why you're here is so that you can be that Mm -hmm. voice for the people of the voiceless. Because without you meeting you, I would have never known that this existed, or my listeners would have never Mm -hmm. known that this is actually happening every single day. There's a lot of things that the media doesn't tell us or we're not aware of. You know, we go about our day every single day thinking we're sitting here being depressed because we didn't have this or we don't have that when there are people truly suffering on the other side of the world. And so I, Mm. I commend you for telling your story because you could have just been like, I'm home and that's it. I don't want to talk about it. It was very traumatizing. And I know that having to tell your story and relive it and having to say it over and over again is probably painful to relive it, but to be able to be just brave to tell your story. It's just incredible. And you are lucky. And we're so thankful to have you alive and being able to tell your story. And oh, so as we wrap up this episode, what would you say is your nugget of wisdom for anyone who is listening right now that is feeling as though, you know, life is hard and 
they're mm-hmm. stuck in their own desert, maybe not like literally, but what would you tell them on how to keep the mm. faith? Because you obviously did. Well, I have a couple of things that are my fundamental um, truths that I go back to all the time. One is that things don't last forever. So if you are in a desert right now, believe you, me, I know how you feel. And um, I've been in several deserts. The good doesn't last and the bad doesn't last. It's all very temporary. And just hang on because your science has shown us that a negative emotion will pass us by in 90 seconds. So sometimes you can only make it, if you can only hang on for 90 seconds at a time, that's what you got to do. I get that. I've been there and please just survive. Hang on. The second thing is that I really believe and he challenged me on this the other day and said it was triggering. And I, I've been sitting with that a little bit, but I really don't believe that things happen to us. I happen, I believe they happen for us. Um, and I, the only way I have been able to carry on yeah. and to continue doing the work that I do with like raising awareness. And I, you know, I work with women and supporting them and helping them tell their stories. And that's, that's what I do all day, every day um, is because I believe that, the way we make our survival bearable is to mine the meaning out of it. That has been really healing and therapeutic for me to figure out like why it happened. Because like, if it didn't, if there was no reason for it, then oh my God, what's the point of living at all? Like, you know, so for me, I've had to, that, that has um, been a huge comfort for me in my healing journey. And then I think the other thing is that, while things don't matter, they sure do take the time that they need to take. Um, and we just have to trust the timing. I, again, trust the universe in the timing and sure would have liked to have spent less time out there, but I think I needed, you know, I didn't spend too much because I made it out. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and for that, I'm grateful. I know. I think about when he said, we've been watching you and it's like, why have you been watching me for this long? Like, you should have picked me up on the first look, right? Yeah. Well, I I understand now it's not that simple, but yes, I mean, there is a temptation to think that, but I, again, (laughs) my life is much more easily lived when I surrender uh, my agenda and my control. I love that. Um, Okay. So how can my audience find you? I know that you host a popular podcast. What is the name of your podcast? I do. I host her name is Jessica too. So we're the two Jesses. It's called, we should talk about that. And Mm. we have, you know, conversations about really uncomfortable things sometimes just because (laughs) we feel like talking about it helps other people feel less isolated and alone. Um, And I hang out on Instagram. I mean, I'm on the other socials, but Instagram is where you're going to connect with me. So, you know, uh, if you're a woman who has been through something and now you know something and now you want to teach us something and you'd like to do that, um, my publishing imprint, Soul Speak Press, is always looking for really interesting stories represented by women. Ooh. I'd love to connect with you. And just pop by and say hi. Yeah. And you have a book that you just wrote, right? What's the name of your book? I did. Um, it's an it's an anthology. So it's Deserts to Mountaintops, our collective journey to reclaiming our voice. And it's 25 women's stories. One chapter is written by three women, a group, but they're all very different accounts of how as women have journeyed out of our own desert to mountaintop and how we've reclaimed our voice. Oh, beautiful. Thank you again for being on the podcast, Jessica. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to Journey of a Fearless Female. 
I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and if you love this episode, make sure you hit subscribe, share it with your friends, and leave a review. I read every single review, and I truly appreciate the time you spend writing it. If you're looking for a life coach or a spiritual mentor, you can book a free discovery call with me at www.fearlessfemale.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at fearlessfemale underscore coach, subscribe to my YouTube channel at fearlessfemale, or find me on TikTok. I'm under at paola.rosser. Tune in next week. Goodbye.